Amen. Amen. Great. I love the old songs done in contemporary uh, uh, instruments. Fantastic. All right. Thank you all. Amen. That first song, what was the first song we sang tonight or this morning? Oh, that was good. I was in there filling communion trays and that came on and I, I was ready for church right then. Okay, uh, another announcement before we get, begin. We're having a youth parents meeting tonight at 4 to talk about our youth mission trip. Um, it's going to be in June, June 26th, and that week. And uh, David McMinn's going to be kind of heading that up for us. And we're going to be talking about that today at uh, 4 o'clock. So if, right? Okay. It, and you are heading that up for us, right? Yeah. Okay. Whew. All right, good. <laughs> All right. All right, so we are continuing in our um, series, New. And we've talked about the new heart, the new spirit, the new uh, covenant. Uh, and a lot of this stuff is, we're just hitting the surface, but it's fundamental to understanding the, the wholeness of the gospel. And it, it's going very well with our Tuesday evening foundational understanding of law and grace. And we talked about um, justification through faith, law, and works, and now we're going to, this week we're going to talk about spirit and grace leading up for our um, book study, Seculosity. Now, you don't have to have had the foundation, because um, you can always go back and read it in Scripture, and we can talk about it, and we're going to talk about it during the week. So it's Seculosity, so those online, I've talked to several people that watch out of our area, and they're, they're participating. I talked to a friend and. Um, up in Fort Worth. I didn't even know they were watching or participating. So, so we, are, we love, you know, on Sunday, our online people, there's Linda DeArmond. She's Fort Worth. Benny, Rosemary, Cheryl. So we, uh, and Phil is double duty. He is here and participating. So we appreciate that. Saying hi to everybody. So let me encourage you to participate in that. So we're going to talk. Uh, Aaron is going to join me this week, and we're going to talk about grace and the Spirit. And then next week, we'll begin our book study of Seculosity. All right, enough commercials. So today, we're going to talk about something we've talked about a lot. And I don't apologize for that because I think it's one of the things that we need to remind, of, remind ourselves of constantly. And that is, with the new covenant came a new commandment uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, it quotes the two greatest commandments from the Old Testament. Uh, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love one another as yourself. So those were taken out of text from the Old Testament. But in the Gospel of John, which is a little different in a variety of ways, he doesn't quote the Old uh, Covenant two greatest commandments. He says, I give you a new command. And we're going to read that right now. It comes out of the Gospel of John. You should get close to knowing it. It's in chapter 13. It's verses 34 through 35, but we're going to expand it and begin in 31. Listen for the word of the Lord. When he was gone, and that's speaking of Judas, after the dinner where they washed each other's feet um, and called out Judas as the betrayer, 
When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. So as I said, we've talked about this before. We've talked about that I feel this is our greatest witness. This is what the world needs. Not that we agree on everything, not that we um, are unanimous on everything, but we love one another. How we care for one another is, is the biggest example, is the most important thing. Not if we're always right. Not because none of us are going to be right. But it is how we love for one another, care for one another, that is going to be our greatest witness. As a review, you hear me say all the time, if the world looks into the church, the church of Jesus Christ, and sees backbiting and fighting and scandals um, over and over, then they're going to say, how is that different from the world? And the answer is, it's not different from the world. And so we lose our witness. So no matter what we do, if it's a Bible study, if it's children's, if it's mission trips, whatever it is, uh, if we are not loving one another as Christ has loved us, we've already lost our witness. We've all seen churches that um, are legalistic churches. And there's not a spirit of love or forgiveness or grace It could be a social justice church. It could be a prosperity church. It could be a moralistic church. Uh, The the law comes in many different forms. But no matter what it is, if, if we're not loving one another, if it's not about care and love for one another as we love our family, then we've already lost our witness. In Malachi, God is so fed up with his people that he says, oh, just shut the temple doors. You're wasting my time, and you're wasting your time. I feel like God is saying that about a lot of churches today, and I don't care how big or how small. I just listened. Susan told me about uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill, a megachurch in Seattle. Very interesting uh, short series podcast, and it, it, it's good because it doesn't, it's not just a, a juicy gossip story about a church with a celebrity pastor that failed, but it talks about the dynamics of church and people in the church and celebrity in church. So it's very good. But one of the things I jumped out on me, at at me when I was listening to that, was how many scandals they say, oh, it was like this church, Billy Heibel's church, or or Ravi Zachariah, just how many scandals there are. Because we get, we, we take our, eye off the ball, and it's about being right or being popular or about numbers. Everything except loving one another. There should be nothing more important than that. You know, and yet, yet we fight over little things, you know, and, and uh, I better be careful. I'll get in trouble, All right? 
All right, so I'm looking at the two pastors over there. So you guys say, yeah, give me one of those. Okay, let's move on. All right, so we have to love one another. You know, I, I gave you, I preached about this, I think, my first Sunday here because I think it's that important. And I talked about my family. I was just with my family, cooked up in the snow. We had kids. There was a lot going on in that house. And we, get, we start going at it a little bit about different things. My son has a different view of my daughter and different, and, and, but, it's, but it's not in hate or it doesn't cause animosity. We tease each other. I, I, I talked about my oldest son when I first came here. I said, boy, he's starting to get a little different ideas than what I have on some things. And I have friends that I agree with on everything. But I will never love my friends more than I love my son, who I disagree with some things on. And that's what we're supposed to be as a church, as a body of Christ. It's okay. I went to one church that was known for a lot of conflict. And I got there and I preached a sermon about no ugly people allowed. And it was, not physically, because I was there, right? So... That, that wasn't the thing. It was, and I said, you can disagree with me. We can have different theologies. We can have different politics. And the list goes on. You can, none of that matters to me. That's going to happen to various degrees. But I said, the only way you will find yourself on the outside looking in if you are ugly to people. If you are mean and divisive, that's the only thing I can't tolerate, and I don't think it's me. I think it's scriptural. I think it's Jesus, because we lose our witness. And so Jesus says, I give you a new command, and he, it's a new command because before it wouldn't, couldn't exist, could it? Because we didn't know how Jesus loved us. And even at this point, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he doesn't know, or they don't know, the fullness of his love, do they? They haven't seen the cross yet. Because Jesus said, there is no greater love than this, than one would give their life for his friends, for another. And Jesus hadn't done that yet, but he was going to. And so they had this new command for when he um, fulfilled the old law and was going to, the old covenant, and was going to establish the new covenant, they were going to have a firsthand example. They didn't have to sit around and go, hmm, how did Jesus love us? If they wanted to know, if anybody in the world wanted to know how Jesus loved us, all they had to do was look at the cross because there is no greater love of sacrifice and selflessness. And that's why I extended uh, our scripture. Just, just so you know, I, I drive Ashley and maybe Chris a little nuts. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I've changed the scripture well, first I had a typo, and it was the wrong scripture. But then I thought, she'll read. It's the New Covenant. She'll read chapter 3. And no, that doesn't make any sense. But then 
she wasn't going to read it. So anyway, I said, it's chapter 13. And then I went up and changed 31 because I wanted us to talk about God, Jesus being glorified. It says he's going to be glorified and God's going to be glorified in him. And we might look at that and say, yeah, oh yeah, he was going to be glorified in the resurrection. But no, first and foremost, he was going to be glorified on the cross. He was going to be lifted up. John tells us in other parts of the scripture, he was going to be lifted up and he was going to be glorified. Now, how does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense when we say he was practically naked. He was betrayed. He was forsaken. He was tortured. He was crucified. How can the text possibly say he was going to be glorified? How can we, how can I say that he is glorified in that situation? That makes no sense. It's the opposite of being glorified, isn't it? He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He was disgraced. Isn't that what we would say in the world about Jesus in that situation? He was abandoned. How is that being glorified? Well, see, the problem is we're never going to understand this, the truth about Jesus being glorified on the cross until we understand this truth. And that is that the things that are valued and glorified in this world are not the same things that are valued and glorified by God in the kingdom of heaven. They're contrary to one another. We don't understand. And the disciples had issues. Peter, when Jesus started talking about his death that was going to take place in Jerusalem, and Peter jumped out in front of Jesus and said, that will never happen. And Jesus is like, all right, get behind me, Satan. He said, you're, he said, the problem is you're thinking and looking through the lenses of the world, not through the lenses of God and the things of God and things of his kingdom. So you, you have it messed up. And, and we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, James and John arguing about who's going to be at his right hand when he is glorified and, and takes power. And Jesus says, no, you, you still don't understand. It's not, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. It is in the world that they, they put their hierarchy on people and oppress people by hierarchy. That's not me. I came to serve, not be served. And so that there's so many examples of how it differs from the world. In the world, in the law, Jesus wasn't supposed to uh, talk to prostitutes. He wasn't supposed to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't supposed to touch the unclean, but the unclean touched him all the time. Uh, the woman with the hemorrhage, the lepers, he touched, had interaction, physical interaction with them all the time. Well, that didn't make sense because it's not of the world, because Jesus is different. He, it wasn't about avoiding the unclean because Jesus came to make the unclean clean, including you and including me. So things, going back to the new covenant, things are different on the surface than we understand. And so Jesus... To understand Jesus 
glorification on the cross, we have to look at it through the, through the lenses of God, through the lenses of what the kingdom values, because what the world glorifies is very different. The world glorifies riches, position, power, fame, achievement. Well, we just latch on to that. Right? We, we have people that have no redeeming value whatsoever that are glorified and held in high esteem because they're either rich or powerful or have fame or achieved something. They're, they're somebodies in this world. That's what it looks like through the lenses of the world. But Jesus at the time of his ministry, was a nobody. He didn't have power. He didn't have position. He didn't have um, money. He didn't have any of that stuff. But he had a little fame, but those were just with common people. It didn't really matter. But through the lenses of Scripture, the kingdom has a much different perspective. Because what the kingdom values, as opposed to everything I just listed for the world, is service, is sacrifice, is selflessness, is love. In fact, for the kingdom of God and the teachings of Jesus, the things of the world, the riches, the achievement, the fame, the power, the position, can be dangerous. Just ask the rich young ruler, they said, what can I do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, keep this law, keep this law. He says, I've done all of that. He said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He said, can't do that. That was the one thing that was keeping him from Jesus. So it can be dangerous. And it says, how hard is it for a rich person to get into the he uh, heaven? As hard as it is from, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. That doesn't mean a rich people can't go to heaven. It just means they got a lot more pull on them in this world. Got a lot more to give up through the lenses of the world in order to receive Christ. You know, as I've grown up, I've lived a pretty full life in all aspects. Before I was a Christian, after I was a Christian, mission trips around the world, um, you know, you, I've, I've lived a full life, both in the world and with God. And I'm coming to a stage in my life where I realize that there's nothing in this world that matters except for what we do for Christ. There was a, I listened to a sermon that was mentioned in this podcast, and it was from John Piper, and he's kind of a Reformed, uh, popular Baptist preacher. And I'm, I'm kind of John Wesley. I'm eclectic. I'll take it. If it's good, I'll take it. I'm not going to uh, dismiss it just because it's from some, some other field or somebody I might not agree with all the time. But he talked about, it was a famous sermon in this movement, uh, a movement that was in the Reformed church that around 2000, he preached this famous sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. And he talks about tragedies. And he talked about two elderly missionary women. One was 
a, a nurse and one was a doctor, and they had given their life in mission trips to glorify Christ and to help people. And, and I think they were in Macaroon. Is that a place? Huh? No, I think it's a place too. Um, but they were in their 80s, and they were going from village to village, spreading the Jesus Christ, giving people medical care, and they were driving up this mountain, and they locked, their brakes went out, and they went over a cliff, and they died. And he said, oh, that, to many people, that's a tragedy. And then he talked about all they did in their life and ris- listed their resume of all the things they had done for Christ and all those that must have come to Christ and known Christ because of them and how that would last for eternity. And then he read this article from Reader's Digest and it was about retirement. And he's talking to like 20-some, it was like thousands and thousands of kids. It was 20-some-something age kids, college kids, he says, and he starts reading Betty and Tom. They have gotten good jobs. And he goes through this list about jobs and bought this house and then bought this land and set off on a good retirement plan and did so well that they were able to retire at 60. And then they moved to somewhere in Florida and went on their boat and lived casually and did all that you do and you're retired at 60 and collected shells. And he said, what happened to those ladies was not a tragedy. He said, this is a tragedy. He said, this is a tragedy. Because those ladies, 20 years after they had retired, had been around the world already again in different places, spreading the gospel, healing people, up to the day they died. That was just 20 years after that, in contrast to the couple that retired when they were 60. He said, on the day of their judgment, when they stand before God to give an account for what they've done, uh, the two ladies would be up there enlisting all they have done for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, and the other couple would be up there and say, here's our shell collection. I was like, I want my kids to see this. And none of that stuff is bad in and of itself. But what are you doing for Christ? Christ died for you because he loves you. That's serious stuff we talk about. That's not a little thing. And yet we casually, and I say we universal Christians, casually treat our faith as a side thing that we do now and then. Not the driving force of our life that Jesus Christ died that I might have life. We occasionally will do something for Christ. We'll occasionally lift him up. It's a side thing. Sure, we do it, but it's a side thing. I did a funeral for a man in one of my churches I didn't know well because I had gotten there. He had died right after I had gotten there. And I read in his obituary some things about him. And it said one of the things that he always said was the only thing we do or the only thing that counts in this world is what we do for Christ. 
And that, that has always stuck with me. I didn't know that man well. I mean, I never met him. I met his wife, talked to his wife, never met him. But his life has witnessed to me ever since. That has stayed with me in the importance. That, and I'm at a point in my life that I know that's the only thing that counts. I have gotten to certain things in and outside of my church life where I thought, if I just get here, if I just get here, if I just get here, and the Lord has blessed me enough that I've gotten to most places where I was trying to get, and I realized it never lasts. The satisfaction, the fulfillment is gone like that. The only thing that has lasted and always fulfilled and never fails me and only gets stronger is the gospel and my relationship with Jesus Christ. When I have nothing else to call on, I can always call on that and I find what I'm looking for. See, but it's different. The, the world and its lenses, looking through lenses of the world makes things seem very different. And we work our whole lives for stuff that in the end isn't inherently bad. I'm not saying it's bad. But when it becomes our life goal, outside of our faith with Christ, then it's not even, it's kind of futile. The only thing that matters in this life is what we do for Christ. Christ gave his life that we might have life. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a big deal to me. We must die to ourselves so that we might be raised and renewed in the new self, in the new spirit, with the new heart. And Jesus has given that opportunity that if we accept his sacrifice, then we will be buried, as Romans says, with him in our death to the old self and be raised anew with a new heart and a new spirit and a new self. And so, to the world, this is all, you know, Christ sometimes is a stumbling stone, and Christ on the cross is a big stumbling stone, because how is that to be glorified? As I said earlier, he's naked, he's betrayed, he's beaten, he's tortured, he's abandoned, he's humiliated. How is that glorification? Well, that's all looking through the lenses of the world, but you look through the lenses of of the kingdom of God and God himself, and you look at the cross and you know what you begin to see by the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to see faithfulness onto the death on the cross. That's deserving of glorification. You see, humbleness, even though he didn't have to go through this, he did because he loves us. That should be glorified. His courage, his selflessness, his grace, his mercy, all of that is on the cross, and that is, should be glorified. Because he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do it. He had all the power in the world. He chose to do it. And you know what that tells me? He did it because he loved us. Because he loved you, and he even loved me. 
Jesus says, I have a new commandment to give to you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. For us, that means warts and all. And he still loves us. Love one another as I have loved you. And if you do that, then the world will truly know you are my disciples. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, I thank you for your patience. When we proclaim a risen Lord that has given us life that we might have life, and yet, Lord, we treat that so casually. Help us to know that you have given your life that we might have abundant life. And that abundant life means peace, fulfillment, grace, and mercy. Not an abundant life of stuff and things, material, money, power, and fame. We might gain that in this life, but Lord, that is not treasures in heaven. That is treasures of this world. Help us to store our treasures in heaven. Help us to live out the new commandments you have given us and the example that we don't have to guess how have you loved us. You have loved us by giving your life, giving your all that we might have life. In Jesus' name, amen.